and welcome again to The Dice Are Screaming. Oh. I'm Randy. And I am Mike. And together we make a podcast. Yeah, well, we do. We do. Uh, we do exactly that, but uh, we, we form The Dice Men of The ah. Dice Men Are Screaming. I feel transformed. <laughs> ah. I'm going to go out and roll some dice now. And the, the all-you-can-eat buffet of uh, gaming podcasts. Yes. We covered a broad and diverse range of topics while trying to adhere to a singular topic at the same time. The, the low-quality beef. Yep. <laughs> the steakums. <laughs> yes. The steakums. Sure, it's comfort food, but uh, is it good for you? I can't say. We better hand that off to the experts. Yeah. So thanks for joining us. This is going to be one of our few, of the last few of our... Uh, Podcast as we will not be podcasting next Tuesday as it's Christmas Eve, so you'll be free of us for at least a good week. So we're going to finish up with our previous topic coming in at uh, one of our better scoring uh, hits. So glad you guys enjoy it. Man. Now, mind you, this does not mean that there won't be a Friday podcast. There will be a Friday mm-hmm. podcast, but we will be taking Christmas off uh, to be with family uh, and those few friends that tolerate our presence on a regular basis. Yeah, true. So. <laughs> true that. So, um, without further ado, we're just going to jump right into the topic where we left off. I'm just going to make a brief um, reduction, redaction from my last podcast where I mentioned there were Cimmerillians in Module B4. They're the Synodicians. And, uh, yeah, my regrets for messing that up. There's so many names, and it's a C word, Cimmerillians. Cincinnatians, you know, Cinnadicians. Yeah. Cimmerians. But B4 was one of my favorites, so I'm just letting that uh, linger. Um, we already covered that topic. But we left off... Yeah, you at, don't know how much trouble we... It, it nearly resulted in fistfights when we were about 14, and the, we had to master the word ixxacital. Ugh. Yeah. That, Let's not bring that back up. The okay. tongue twisters of D&D. I think I just figured out another episode. Yeah, tongue twisters. Tongue twisters of D&D. Yeah, oh, that'll yeah. be great. Yeah, right up there with the Bard's cast. Okay, so uh, we talked yeah, about... I'm still getting I'm still getting short shrift on the Bard's thing, but we're talking favorite modules again today, so yes. I'm still in my happy place. Happy, happy. I really am. I, I am just literally like a possum in a junk pile. I, oh. I am... <laughs> Oh, I'm like Templeton the Rat at the county fair at the end of Charlotte's Web. Oh, oh my God, this is so wonderful. So much good stuff. Oh. So we talked about uh, Castle Amber and the Slave Lord series, as well as uh, Temple of Elemental Evil and uh, the oh. Lost City. Oh, in the White Plume Mountain. We yeah, touched yeah. on that one. Yeah. Uh, we left just hinting yeah. at... Uh, a non D and D campaign that was Warhammer forty k, or no or, Warhammer sorry, Fantasy, not, not Warhammer Fantasy in its original outing. Yep. Uh, the superb, which it, it it could just be chalked up to who was running it at the time. Not to just flatter you too much there. Oh well, well, no. Uh, but <clears throat> the enemy within. Oh yeah, I did audio tapes for that. I had a whole uh, cassette tape recorded and layered. With uh, an intro set to some creepy, evocative music. <laughs> Didn't we rip off uh, Celtic Frost for that? Some of it, yes. Yeah. 
<laughs> Which, yeah, for you metalheads out there, Celtic Frost. Now, Warhammer is not D&D. Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay is uh, a long-lost favorite. I mean, it's now back in print and uh, running strong. Um, we played... Yeah, they returned, and well-deserved, too. Oh, I, I, I'm going to say with perfect candor that the original print run, which I still have my book for, uh, <laughs> was just fraught with errors, much like some of the very oh, earliest yeah. printings of D&D. Okay, it just... This does not mean that it was a lousy system or a terrible idea. It just means that it, it was a crew of... Uh, English guys who decided, hey, let's make a game. You know? Yeah, and it was a love letter to D&D, as well as yeah. incorporate things from RuneQuest, Armor Absorbed Damage, Hit Locations, and the Critical Hit Charts. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. Spleen Explosion. Uh, yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, the game was uh, notably uh, brutal in the fine tradition of early D&D. Uh, just... It, but gorily specific at times. I just wonderfully so. It it had a lot more character than uh, some of the more bland explanations that were left up purely to the DM. They they had handed some really nice descriptive text. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that it was very new at the time, uh, circa the nineteen eighties. It was a, a great homage to D anD. d Done Brit style, uh, with you know the the orcs and goblins, uh, <laughs> not uh, not ironically at all. You know, just uh, Cockney orcs. Yeah, and it didn't really um, it didn't really hit a lot of people's wheelhouse right away, but it soon grew into a fan favorite, and I consider it one of the best uh, written and executed campaigns. Just out of the box system, and it came in uh, four distinct um, episodes, with the fifth one being kind of uh, controversial, but we'll get into that. But to go back into it, um, yeah, Warhammer Fantasy roleplay, as it was presented, was kind of a love letter to D&D, and so it had kind of a new magic system and all that, but um, spell points and stuff, but it was still pretty much right out of the box, just D&D. But low magic was one of its uh, hallmarks. Um, magic weapons were rare. Yeah, magic yugas and items and trinkets and whatnots were... I'm, I'm not going to say that they were unlikely to appear, because during a lengthy enough campaign, uh, you're almost certain to encounter something. Yeah. But, you know, items of great legendary power, few and far between. Uh, if you had anything magical at all, you were pretty darn lucky. Yep. Uh, a potion here, a scroll there, uh, a little trinket necklace that protects you against X, Y, or Z. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, an enchanted blade. Sure, okay, these things were present, but not to the degree that they were seen in D&D. And it did have its own particular feel. Grim and Perilous, or the Grim Dark, as it would later be coined, was its hallmark. But... Uh, yeah. As we're going to get into it, uh, the first one was The Enemy Within, which was more like a primer. that uh, Woo! My favorite! The, which started the player characters in kind of going after a reward. Or, excuse me, not a reward, but being summoned to a expedition into the Drachenfell Mountains in the Empire, which was this gothic Germany with all sorts of corruption set within. 
chaos cults abound and all this dark omens coming to pass and put the players on the footing of right away of being kind of caught up in something larger. And so it had a lot of forbidding right off the uh, bat. A lot of uh, foreshadowing there. They layered this module with things going on on the face and things going on under the surface. So you, you know, you find yourself as player characters getting hired to do a job. The job winds up bringing you into a state of awareness of some things that are going horribly awry. Mm -hmm. And it becomes politicized. It's difficult to accomplish your goals with various persons moving against you or denying that anything is wrong at all. And, you know, you're kind of at odds. You've got allies and enemies, uh, you know, in public life. And then in adventuring life, you know, you know perfectly well that, like, no, these threats are quite real. Why will you not believe me? Right off the bat, you come across a scene of mutants attacking a uh, coach. And as you're trying to travel to get to this uh, noble's summons for adventurers seeking treasure and fame in his expedition into this unknown area. And he, of course, has already left town. The players don't know that. But uh, (laughs) they're going there anyway. One of the players looks like, uncannily like, somebody who has been killed by a mutant. And so the players find on him a note giving them gold. So gold is rare in this game, so they go and try to cash that in and find out that they are in cahoots with a chaos cult. And the chaos cult thinks that one of the player characters, whom is picked by the uh, game master is this fellow who is a cult leader. And there the fun begins. But uh, yeah. it progresses into Shadows Over Bogenhaven, which is a great mystery uh, adventure with... Oh, terrific high tension. This Finding out, yeah, what was it? The, you had to go in the sewers, you attended the fair, there the was a three-legged goblin. Yes, yep. and down in the sewers, the ratman, uh, the ratling, or what were those called? Skaven. Yes. You had the Skaven encounter deep down in the, uh, the, the rat people encounter down in the sewers. Uh, and once again, chaos is rearing its ugly head. Yeah, you find an altar. and below. The goblin had uh, snuck into a hidden area that was used for dark rituals and had gotten killed by a demon. And the players come out saying, oh, you know, the goblin's dead, but we found this demon cult down in there. And, uh, yeah... <clears throat> Yeah, too Nobody many, believes you. and Too many members of the high council in town, uh, too many of the magnates and uh, wealthy persons are involved in the mm-hmm. actual cult, uh, hoping to gain great favor from infernal powers. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, your news is met with great, great displeasure. Yep, and the players are discouraged from looking up on it, and there's lots of frustrations and subtle investigations that you can embark upon. But eventually one of the members of this cult loses his nerve and comes clean with his involvement in what's going on. It's all true. It's all true. And uh, it culminates in stopping the ritual before a great demon is unleashed. And it's a lot of fun and it builds tension. It's one of the few times where we've talked about this before. Shadows over the Bogenhafen module precipitated a 
long series of investigations with very little combat, only at the end. And players just sat there and were afterwards like, this is the most fun I've had without ever drawing my blade. Yeah, I literally was on the edge of my seat for hours. And I, I think that's the height of a good game, uh, balancing when there is no combat. Because, let's face it, a lot of D&D and other game experiences, people really get keyed up and they pay the most attention during the conflict. Uh, investigations take a back seat. You know, just a couple of people take the lead, a couple of people pay the most attention, maybe there's a little table chatter. Uh, it's not the most popular part of the game. So creating an environment and a situation that catches players' interest and that keeps them interested all the way through is extremely challenging. And Shadows Over Bokenhaven delivered. It, it just nailed it. Yeah, and that's one of the high points. And then it proceeds into Death in the Reich, a box set with a whole kind of mega campaign before that became a thing, where you were traveling up and down the Reich, the main river, up in... Uh, this gothic Germany, and uh, you started trading and doing things. It was wide open, but it had a lot of campaign hooks for bringing the players in before, as they discover, of course, that uh, the one player character is now being pursued by the cult, or the cult of the Purple Hand, and doing these exaggerated, subtle, uh, secret signs that only cult members would know, which, of course, the player doesn't. And so this result in some physical comedy as they got more and more frustrated that he was not responding. Why are you not answering our clear message to you? <laughs> I've been, sir, why are you continually rubbing your nose? And pulling your ear, yeah, you know. Uh, yeah, so there was that, and there was lots of other things to do, a... Uh, Dwarven excavation had gone awry as you just go past uh, on your ship, or your little boat, excuse me. And, you know, then you finally get a couple of good hooks that send you on overlight adventures that call you make into going to Castle Wickenstein, which, well-named Castle Wickenstein. Yeah. Well-played Warhammer fantasy role-play. Well-played. Yeah. Uh, superb hidden references all throughout it. Uh, big, big guys over at... Um, Warhammer. Yeah, Games Workshop. Games right. Workshop. The the Games Workshop crew were some highly literate people. Yeah, uh, and then there was did. Power Behind the Throne where you went to Midnheim and uh, to that tall mountainous city on uh, Questered Way on the eastern borders of the Reich and uh, then you came to final confrontation with the leader of the cult and everything accumulated with a Power Behind the Throne and you headed off the Chaos Cult's evil plans almost coming to fulfillment, and you had to uncover who the principal players were, so politics and uh, skullduggery were rife and required, but by this time the players were pretty well uh, skilled and competent, and so they were up for the challenge. And it, uh, Very different system for uh, character class type, and level racing. Uh, they had what were career paths, uh, and mm -hmm. given careers allowed certain opportunities for the improvement of uh, specific abilities and skills. Uh, and outside of that career, you might not be able to attain that skill. Yeah. So you had to buy your way into professions 
via experience points, time, training, and effort. And rather than the traditional level-based system, you could follow career path after career path, uh, continually refining your skills until you reached uh, very respectable careers, going from a humble carpenter uh, to a bodyguard, uh, yep. up into the ranks of uh, mercenary, uh, mercenary combatants. Yeah, mercenary and, sergeant, mercenary captain, and then possibly Templar. But Yeah, Templar, witch hunter, things like that became possible uh, later on. Yeah, the advanced uh, classes. Very, so. very different. But yeah, in the late game, the characters were well suited for laying waste to... Uh, Serious enemies. Yep, and you get the uh, end result is the destruction of the cult that's been hounding you and the payoff by confronting the power behind the throne to endanger one of the electors of the Reich. And that's where that ended. And then it kind of, well, it went awry. And we're just going to brush over this real quick. It went to something rotten and kiss love. Some people love that <clears throat> adventure. And yeah, it's just ultimate railroad. Not really fun, and change the tenor of the campaign of, of this dark, brooding atmosphere to one of light-hearted GM chicanery, which seemed more fitting for paranoia than it did for serious yes. gameplay. And I'm going to be explicit about this, that had that been the core concept from the get-go, had this been a paranoia-like comedy campaign, where the DM bigfoots the crap out of the players at all turns. Uh, had that been what that game was intended to be and what it had been doing for three other modules before it, then this would have been a terrific installment that belonged in the set. Instead, what happened is they got a big name on the project from outside who was really out of their bailiwick, somebody who had radically different ideas, uh, and I'm being super politic right now. Yes. I, I'm If... I, I know we're on the air right now. I actually... Mm -hmm. I'm not going to name names, because if I do, it's going to be followed by a series of curses. Uh, and we don't have a seven-second delay button here. So, so, yeah. So, I'm just going to say that I was extremely displeased with the fourth installment, only because it broke with the entire character and theme of everything published before, so radically that you felt like you were playing an entirely different game. Which, after such a fantastic build-up, was just an incredible letdown. So we, at that time, at the time of the release of that module, uh, we got a look at this and just went, oh gosh, we can't do anything with this. This is, this is terrible. They redeemed themselves with Empire and Flames, which was a very concerted effort to get the ending back on track. Yeah, and but it was a little too late and a little too little at the time, and so it went... Yeah, it lost a lot of steam, all you know, owed to one man, one man, one man, like a one game writer wrecking crew capable of destroying even the finest of systems. But we're not bitter. <laughs> no, so I'm anyway, <laughs> um, that was one of our favorites at the time. And yeah, that it has some tragedy and pathos, and it is, of course, to be expected in the vagaries of game industries and all that. Yeah. But, you know... Um, Water under the bridge. Um, Masks of Nilarthotep, uh, one that I played in with Call of Cthulhu, uh, relates very heavily to that. And, of course, it predates 
the enemy was in. But uh, I just, it, that was outside my wheelhouse at the time. I, I played some Call of Cthulhu, but I wasn't uh, really invested into it. And to be honest, Call of Cthulhu required a lot of, it changed up how we played normally, which was just, okay, we're breaking down doors and kicking ass, so get ready. Yeah. Buckle I, up. And instead you find yourselves paying careful attention to minute details in social conversation and unraveling, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the backstories of involved persons. Uh, they did some wonderful releases that had an air of uh, noir filmmaking. Oh, um, yeah, definitely. You know, almost Humphrey Bogart or Chinatown-esque. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, Murder on the... Oh, excuse me, yes, is it Murder on the Orient Express? Oh, it's Cthulhu on the Orient Express, I forget. <laughs> yeah, but uh, whatever it is, um, that was a good one for film noir with only a, a smidgen of myth, Cthulhu mythos in but uh, hey, you know, cultists are everywhere, right? So, but Call of Cthulhu is, uh, especially not Mask and Arlokotep, is coming out, uh, or has already come out with a uh, anniversary edition. So pick that up and dust off uh, your copy of Call of Cthulhu and take one die six and sanity. <laughs> if you're lucky, it's just Oh, die yeah, six you are. And, and just remember always <laughs> burn, burn the, the books. books, don't read them. Okay, so. But, uh, yeah, Warhammer uh, Fantasy Roleplay gave us a different view of what's out there. Now, other... In keeping with the British theme, I, I feel like we should... Oh, okay. feel like pause and mention uh, in more traditional D&D modules that were longtime favorites. Gotta hand it to the Sinister Secret of Saltmarsh. Yeah, getting back to the D&D stuff, yes. Terrific. Um, U1, 2, and 3. Yeah, uh, U1, U2, and U3... Uh, no relation to the band in the middle mm -hmm. there. Uh, the Salt Marsh campaign series. I want to be the edge. Oh, oh, you took the edge. What am I yeah. stuck with Bono? I guess. All right. That's not so bad. Well, Sunday, bloody Sunday. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> in any case, this was a three-module pack that could take characters from first up to around seventh. You know, closer yeah, you, to like sixth, seventh level is where things catch Yeah, you off. might get a couple uh, thieves and um, uh, yeah, those, the clerics up to that level, but not but not too far. You know, you were going to find that the by the time they completed the campaign series, uh, most of the party would be somewhere around fourth to sixth level. Uh, yeah. It was theoretically possible to get a little further if they really eked out every last XP. Uh, in any case, it was a purely British offering that like crossed the pond and did really well here. I, mm -hmm. that, that was one of uh, TSR UK. Uh, it's, I, I still think it's like one of their finest outings because the theme of the Sinister Secret of Saltmarsh, once again, a lot of things going on at the same time, uh, interlinked module to module. But the opening is comparatively simple, deceptively simple. Go check out a haunted house. Easiest thing in the world. Uh, and you wind up unraveling a smuggler's den. Yeah. Uh, it, it seems a little hokey and 
you know, it's a, oh great, we're the Scoobies, you know, as you're going in. And <laughs> by the time you're uh, three modules in, you know, you're waging war against Sahaugen. Yeah, and well done on that. I mean, there's just a, a whole slew of campaign epic adventure right there for you, and it is oh, yeah. meaty, and it's evocative. The, the and third book is like, a, it's not just kicking butt, it's also alliance building. Yeah, you have to get help from some of the other undersea folk and help you crush the Sahaugan, who are the real threat. Yeah, and I mean, the player characters could try it alone, but uh, boy, howdy. I mean, good luck on that. Uh, I, I was blessed with a very smart group of players who uh, executed the negotiations well, and they built an alliance of human villagers, lizard men, and, oh, I believe there was one other race involved. Uh, but their, you know, tripartite alliance then invaded the Sahaugan lair and reclaimed it for the Lizardmen, ending the conflict between Lizardmen and humans. Uh, and driving away, of course, the Sahaugan, who are pretty freaking brutal. Uh, and Orcs with gills. That's yeah. what I call them. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, Sahaugan are uh, one of the AD&D, or Dungeons & Dragons games, penultimate uh, undersea humanoids, and they're given a short shrift, you know, sometimes they're portrayed as shark men or orcs with gills, but... Hobgoblins of the sea. Well, those call it. Yeah. Uh, no, they're, they're pretty darn dedicated to, you know, being organized and fighting in team style with good tactics. And so their dark it, goddess, Sakotha, the megalodon goddess. I, I enjoyed sinking my teeth into a DM role where I was allowed to use a monster very intelligently mm -hmm. uh, to deploy tactics to fight in waves and, you know, entrenched positions. And yeah, it was a good time. But those three modules stand out as a uh, yet another longtime favorite uh, with many thanks to our friends across the pond because that was a great gaming experience that I otherwise would not have had. Oh, yeah, and... Um... You know, as we uh, talk about Sinister uh, Secret Assault Mars, the starter, and uh, I think the last one's what the enemy below or whatever. Yeah, that's about I forgot the what the second one was. It's uh, not because it's forgettable, but it's been a long time and many hits to the head and too many beers. It has come to me to the real uh, that part of that the allure of that was how well it fit together in a campaign. I mean, there had been, like, Module A 1 through 4, which kind of fit together, but it wasn't as uh, concise and all-encompassing as this one was. So it was a nice change of pace, and it set forth a precedent to bring in not only the background, but also some of the uh, aspects of the campaign itself into the game. You didn't see a lot of that in A1, or in later adventures like uh, Village of Hamlet and uh, Temple of El Malibu. It was there, but it just wasn't as presented as succinctly as this. And it left a lot of room open for you if you didn't want to play in the world of Greyhawk, you had your own campaign world, or you just wanted to play this module in absentia of any campaign world. It gave you enough meat on the bone 
to really make something out of it. So Yeah, all you needed was a coastline. Yeah, and that's all you needed to know, and you could build up from there in good old school fashion. But we digress on that part because that starts to take us out of talking about the favorite modules. We're just praising its openness and yet its concise nature. And I'd like to also add that uh, from that came many other uh, ideas on how to run a D&D game. And uh, from that, we owe a big tip of the hat to uh, Sinister Secret of the Salt Marsh, the whole U series. But I also would uh, be remiss if I didn't mention another one that's uh, popular with me, at least, is The Gauntlet and Sentinel. It's a two-part series that uh, goes on a magic item and a keep. Oh, I remember yeah. those. The Sentinel, which is a had its twin, The Gauntlet. And the Sentinel was kind of not as powerful as the Gauntlet, or at least offensively, but very defen defensive in nature, and allowed a was more uh, open to revealing its secrets to a user who was good aligned. And that's using the alignment system well, and also, um, you know, a big uh, fight with a fire giant lord and his hobgoblin army oh. as, the, uh, as the end piece of the gauntlet. And, uh, you know, it didn't end up with, uh, it had a multiple of outcomes. One, of course, you could just leave. Two, uh, the second is hold out as best as you could in the small, magically uh, keyed fortress that the sentinel, the one uh, glove, uh, gave you great power over to reinforce walls and uh, divine secrets where people, uh, where infiltrators were trying to get through and uh, stop them. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, you could, at the end, if you extracted enough uh, blood out of the Hobgoblin army, the fire giant would actually come up and uh, leave. Yeah, I mean, you could get them to acquiesce. Now, of yep. course, like, your grand goal was to reunite uh, the twin artifacts. Yep, and once touched together, they cancel each other out. Just boom, finally, done. Uh, no longer a threat to anybody, or actually no longer a benefit to anybody. But, I mean, that was the player character's options. Once again, you know, lots of options on the table there. Yep, and let's uh, let the dice fall where they may, which was another good one. So, um, that's a good classic module out of the uh, dustbin, and uh, some of the ones coming up and out of it... Um, Let's see, second edition, I think Dragon Mountain, that big box set. Big honking box set with just more kobolds than you would care to imagine. Oh. Uh, with a red dragon at the end and uh, highlighting the new dragon rules. Wow, that was a tough one. And, jeez, uh, what some other second edition? I really want to go back to the classic well, well again one last time before we wrap this one. Okay. I, I gotta talk Bone Hill. Because that... I, I know the second module, Assassin's Knot, was not as well received and was not as much... got no attention at all. Sure. Uh, but the original Secret of Bone Hill, that's a terrific little module. I mean, it, it's placed in an unusual area, the... what was it, the Lendor Isles? Yes, it was Len Lakofla's uh, little entry there to the world of Greyhawk. Yeah. He was given his own little realm to kind of flesh out. And what a wonderful outing it was. We've run that one several times over the years, and yeah. I never failed to have a good time. We we actually have, uh, I still have a, uh, <laughs> a illustrated map that a friend of ours made during the game, doodling as we went from encounter to encounter. 
uh, making puns and jokes about the things that we encountered in the order that we encountered mm -hmm. uh, all in search of a uh, holy chalice that, that could make holy water. Yep. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I tell you what, um, since we're getting down in time um, and people have been asking us to dig in that, we're going to go through that step-by-step uh, step for a future one and uh, uh, devote an entire episode to just uh, delving into that one, nitty-gritty style. So Really? Yeah. We'll do do a, a true pick-apart. It, it's... It sounds like a thing we should do. Yep, from the town of Restonport all the way to Bone Hill itself and all that stuff. Yeah, we're going to go micro uh, and try a point-by-point -point analysis with uh, DM commentary. You know, just that this is the director's cut with DM commentary. Yeah, exactly, uh, and that's how we're going to end up doing that. So. You know, page-by-page, page, uh, some recommendations for uh, preparation of the module, maximizing the amount of campaign play you can get out of it because uh, honestly you know some modules you crack them open the players go in they kick everything's butt and they come right back out and it's over white plume mountain is a perfect example of this it, sure. is, it is not based for campaign play it is an adventure that you have and you may have it during campaign play but it includes no greater material and no real serious background mm -hmm. Bone Hill and some of these others are very different. They they allow you a place that you can sculpt and that your players can operate out of. Uh, right. And the best ones were very well fleshed out. So, you know, we'll give that a nice... Yeah, we'll give that one. It's nice and... Uh, this time we'll pick the bones clean. We'll try. And, uh, on that note, uh, uh, just a few things briefly is I... Uh, I know a lot of people from 3rd edition, like Red Hand of Doom, I got to play through that as a player, not a DM, so mm. my DM status on that is somewhat limited, but, uh, yep, my silver half-dragon paladin of Bahamut mm. still stands alone. Yep. Most powerful player character I've ever had. Jeez. Yeah. That guy got, oh, 11th level. Mm. Mm. Nice. Yeah, so... Uh, no, we're gonna. We would also be remiss if we didn't touch about the uh, Dungeon Magazine years because some of those were hit or miss, you know, as uh, everyone, you know. But yeah, look, a lot of good stuff came out of Dungeon, and uh, it's a thing I miss very much. I miss the palpable presence of a magazine that you're cracking open for the first time. Ezines didn't do it for me, which just tells you what sort of crusty old gamer yeah. I really am. I like paper and ink and cracking it open for the first time and looking in there and going, wow. Uh, which did not always happen. You're right. Many of them were hit or miss. But yeah, there some were some more great outings. Uh, the Mud Sorcerer's Tomb. Oh, jeez. I mean, for a magazine that ran Adventures, it was bi-monthly. So you got six issues a year. For a magazine that had a span of almost 15 years? Yeah, something like that. 12, 15 years. With three or four modules, uh, usually at least two of them were always D and D based. Oh yeah, they started to branch off a little bit, but yeah, later on they they would make a special appearance for alternate one and other TSR games. They even had a few. Uh, well, I don't know if Dungeon had too many Marvel superhero games in it, but at the time, something about licensing or crap like that. But hmm. yeah, you know, there was some TSR. Uh, little bits in there that I believe there was some Buck Rogers here and there too but uh, 
Anyway, we're starting to wander off into the weeds on this one. Yeah. And so... Uh, yeah, we, we pretty well uh, hit some classic favorites of ours, things we really enjoyed playing. That was a good time. Yeah, and, you know, nowadays we have uh, the Adventure Pass and uh, Wizards of the Coast is followed suit by Paizo with that. Uh, Rise of the Rune Lords probably stands as their first and best offering. I mean, I'm not going to poo-poo anyone's. I lo- definitely like Curse of the Crimson Throne and... Uh, well, what's the name of the thing we're in now in Pathfinder? What's oh, uh, War of the Crown. War of the Crown. I'm having a great time in this yeah, one. Yeah. You um, know, and I, I just want to throw it out there because I, I wanted to get credit during the modules episode. So, you know, War of the Crown... I'm having an outstanding time. It's it's got a lot of room for quirks, a lot of uh, meta possibilities where you can you can go combat heavy if you want to. There's there's enough conflict uh, lurking around for you to, to get your licks in, uh, but it's also got a terrific political setup with uh, social engagements having a lot of potential for reaping rewards. Uh, and XPs are goal-based. You know, like, did you accomplish this particular set of tasks? And not always, those tasks are not always things that are soaked in blood. Those are mm-hmm. things that, like, you have to get it done. Uh, and you're going to roll this out, and you're going to get in there and, and play. But you can't just, you know, like, put a shank in somebody and boom, my goal yeah. is solved. So it's, I, I think it's delivering a lot of material on multiple levels, so I, I gotta I gotta praise it where I can because I'm having a blast. Uh, and I'm yeah, just... as far as fifth edition, the War of the Dragon Queen um, is a real good offering from Wizards as well. So oh. you know we live in a good time right now where once again we're inundated with oh inundated inundated yes sorry the uh, with the <laughs> the plains are flooded with, with good the, material yep and the DMs Adventure Guild and. Pizor are just constantly giving out good products. So, you know what? We're in a new time and a new era. Let's make new classics. You know, we talk a lot about the old stuff, and sometimes it gets to the point of almost oh. being fetishized. And good closing note, which, you know, I, I gotta say, I agree. You know, uh, bring back... Uh, bringing back the old stuff is great as a reminder. I mean, it, it gives us a sense of where our roots are. Yeah. But there's hints and bits there that can be homaged in today's terrific works. Because uh, the great stuff is coming out left and right. I can't. I literally can't keep up with it all. No, I can't either. And that, that's a great thing. We're not distracting. So there's good stuff coming out from all corners. The old school crowd is making and uh, cranking out good product. And, you know, it's a good time to be a gamer. So go out there, grab you some dice and a group, get yourself set up and make some new memories and make some new modules to talk about in the same way that people talk about Caves of Chaos, oh, Castle yeah. Amber, and Isle of Dread. <clears throat> exactly. That is it. Give them... Uh, give the world tomorrow's great memories, because uh, gaming, as we knew it uh, 30-odd years ago, has given the world a lot of great stuff now. And, you know, who knows what people are going to be celebrating 30-odd years from now. Yeah. It could be the stuff, you know, that you've got sitting on a shelf that, well, I never did finish this. I always wanted to write it. No, finish it. Give it a shot. Uh, you don't know. Could be right. the next George Martin. Yeah, that's true. Well, with that, uh, thanks for sticking with us. We ran uh, pretty good to our time limit. So 
or within that uh, little glass boundary. So thank you for all for tuning in and listening with us. And we hope, that, of course, as this holiday season starts to draw you ever closer, that you have some uh, great times with friends and family. Also, get some fat loot from Santa. Oh, Santa yeah. Orc coming by on his eight tiny painter. Yes, with crits for everybody. Oh, you you're... get a crit. And you get a crit. So lucky I didn't do that to you in the store last night. It was such a temptation. Yep. Was, they were in the basement of Perfect Storm, uh, our comic and game shop here in town. And there is a vent that leads <laughs> down to right where their table is. And I just, I came this close to hunkering over that vent. <laughs> ho, ho, ho. This is Santa Orc. Uh, I, I really wanted to. <laughs> well, well, we were having our Christmas party. I, with I the restrained crowd, myself. So. All right, then. Well, we're going to log off and uh, sign off. And uh, as we do so, we wish you all the best that the season can bring. And we hope that it's a memorable one. And we'll be getting back to you on Friday, so right before the Christmas. So we'll do our last send-off. And uh, as speaking of send-offs, here we go. Ah, May the dice, dice always roll in your, your favor. favor. We're out. See ya. <laughs>